welcome to Modus Scotus. My name is Venetia Herdebees. And I'm Bill Kehoe. And today is March 6th, 2021. And how are you doing today, Bill? You know, I'm a little tired. A little tired. The semester's draining down on me, but I'm looking forward to spring break. Spring break for law students is not spring break for undergrads. I'm not going to Cancun and getting drunk out of, you know, complete, you know, craziness. It's actually going to be writing, but I'm ready for spring break. That's all I wanted to say. Me too. Although I'm barely even doing anything this semester. Yeah, no, you're not. No, you're not. (laughs) I have one class and it's pretty straightforward and easy. Whatever. I enjoy it. Well, to brighten your Saturday afternoon, I have a news item for you. Oh, what is it? So do you remember January 6th of 2021? Oh boy, do I. (laughs) Right. So those were the Capitol riots that took place. Um, Obviously, there were Uh, A lot of individuals from different groups, one of them being QAnon. Mm -hmm. Yep. Do you remember the photo of the man with the horns? The QAnon shaman. Yeah, the QAnon shaman. Mm -hmm. Yes. So this is about him. So, you know, being a lawyer, one of the things you have to do or deal with is these types of clients. You know, this could be your client someday. Mm -hmm. So his attorney is Albert Watkins. Okay. And today, I believe it was today, or maybe it was yesterday, they had a hearing to, you know, he's trying to get out on bail so that Mm -hmm. he doesn't have to stay in prison awaiting his hearing. Right, because they don't serve vegan food in prison. Oh, my God. Yeah, you already know all of the story anyway. Yes. So one of his (laughs) issues is that um, this, the, the QAnon shaman, his name is actually Jacob Chansley. And he says that he abides by shamanisms. I'm not sure what that entails. I mean, who doesn't? But so he did file a motion with the court to have access to um, vegan foods, all natural, organic. That's what it was. It was organic foods. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the, the judge actually, they did approve that motion. And so he was actually transferred to another facility where he could have access to those types of foods. Um, and that is because First Amendment privileges, it is a sincere religious belief on behalf of Chansley that he needs to eat these types of foods because it's part of his shaman uh, culture. Mm-hmm. And so the judge could not deny him access to that because it's a sincere religious belief. And so therefore he had access to it. Well, the finder of fact is, um, you know what, if the finder of fact found that there are sincere religious beliefs, then uh, have at it. Well, anyway, so they had his hearing. Uh, for pre-hearing uh, release, you know, jail, uh, bond, essentially. And so his attorney, Watkins, had to try to paint a picture of this individual as being someone who's sympathetic and should be released out on bail. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things that uh, attorney Watkins told the trial court was that, you know, clearly from his garb, his fuzzy headdress and his horns and his tattoos. This is all part of his cultural identity as a shaman, mm-hmm. which they tend to be very um, nonviolent and um, friendly types of people. Mm-hmm. And so therefore he should be viewed as such. Uh, and then he did make a quick aside that, you know, regardless of whether or not it's a good look, I can't say. And the judge laughed at that. He thought it was funny. That's good. Um, but yeah, so the attorney Watkins has compared um Chansley to Forrest Gump. 
in, you know, trying oh. to go to the Capitol on behalf of the president. Like, it was an invitation, just like Forrest Gump had an invitation to meet the president. Um, and then also a little bit of a, you know, problem that this attorney had. Um, you can't let a inmate um, go do an interview without first getting it approved by the prosecutor, like both sides of the um, case, obviously, and the judge and the jail to make sure everyone's okay with it. Um, and he did not do that, but then did have a 60 minutes interview, though the prosecutor then used everything he said in that interview against him to show that this guy clearly does not feel bad about what he did because he's still ranting and raving all the same things on 60 minutes. And so therefore we shouldn't let him out because he has no remorse and he, you know, is cuckoo bananas or something. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm wondering if that was actually a clever move on behalf of the attorney trying to again um feed this narrative that you know this individual was really just he thought he had an invitation from the president so he was hoping he's gonna go in 60 minutes and say it was like a pseudo ngri kind of defense uh not even but just um we don't even need to worry about is he dangerous or is he um insubordinate is he an anarchist like these are the things that you don't really think about you see the news uh, surrounding all of these individuals and you're probably thinking like oh i don't want to be his attorney but someone has to be his attorney right and so it's very interesting to me someone who wants to be a defense attorney seeing the ways you know how, what's the narrative that this attorney is going to play with this individual because probably out of everyone that was photographed and videoed on january 6th this is the most memorable person oh, i think one thousand percent right because of his garb especially so the person who gets to be his lucky attorney you know i i'll certainly keep an eye on that because i think it's interesting yes but yes moving on from that today we have two topics that we're going to cover and both are essentially covering the same issue we're going to be talking about voting. So recently at the Supreme Court, the justices heard the case of Bill? It was uh, Brenovich. Uh, yeah, Brenovich versus the Arizona DNC. And then our second topic will be House Resolution 1, the, you know, the Democrats, the House Democrats um, voting reform bill that they just passed and is heading to the Senate. Yep. And it's all very related. All right, so let's dive into the hearing. Bill, when did Bronovich come out? It came out a couple days ago. March 2nd is when they had the hearing. Excellent, so we're right on top of it. Yes. All right, so this case takes place in Arizona, and as we learned last week, the federal constitution grants states the right to regulate their own election systems within their state. So Arizona here is doing just that. They're regulating their voting system that they have in place. Currently in Arizona, there are two methods of voting. The first is in-person voting at a precinct or vote center, either on election day or during a early vote period. The second method is early voting, where the voter receives the ballot by mail and can either mail it back or deliver the ballot to a designated drop-off location. So, Bill, will you talk about the two new regulations or new-ish regulations that Arizona is disputing, fighting with the DNC in this case? Well, the two the two laws on the books that are at question in this case is one, the out-of-precinct issue and then the ballot harvesting issue. So the out-of-precinct issue means if you go to a voting center, but that is not your voting center, 
you can either be redirected to your voting center or you can cast a provisional ballot, which is not guaranteed to be counted because you're, and the idea there is there's so much local election happening and you're eligible to vote in within the elections in your precinct, right? That's the intent there is you should only be able to vote on your precinct's elections. So that's, that's the interest there. You can cast a provisional ballot and they don't have to count it. And sometimes these ballots get thrown out. Uh, the second law is which bans ballot harvesting. And ballot harvesting is basically anytime there's a mail-in, you, you've received a mail-in ballot and someone other than a close member of your household or an, or an agent of yours goes and delivers that ballot. So there were cases, um, and it turns out the facts behind these cases were kind of loose and not so factual, where people would gather a bunch of ballots and bring like a hundred or two hundred in at a time, and that was kind. Of, they were being they were being accused of uh, dumping or dumping ballots or um, just stuffing the ballot boxes with votes that they didn't you know they didn't, they couldn't verify who had actually voted for them. It, it, it so that that was the reason why. And they're like, we don't want to do any ballot harvesting. Uh, we're going to outlaw that. So those are the two laws that the DNC is taking issue with in this case. All right, and so why is this case at the Supreme Court? So the questions before the Supreme Court is, one, does the Arizona out-of-precinct policy, which is, you know, you've got to vote in your own precinct, violate Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act? And the second question is, does Arizona's House Bill 2023, which this is the House, this is the bill that outlaws ballot harvesting, does that bill violate Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act or the 15th Amendment? All right, so let's dig into both of those. So... I don't know much about voting, so I had to research all of this stuff ahead of time. Can you even vote? <laughs> Are you registered to vote? Yeah. Oh. I used to vote right next to your apartment. That's right. Yeah, at the church. Um, anyway, so Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 prohibits voting practices or procedures that discriminate on the basis of race, color, or membership in one of the language minority groups identified in Section 4, Subsection F, Subsection 2 of the Act. Essentially, what they're looking to do here is set up a nationwide voting standard that does not allow for the denial or abridgment of the right of any citizen to vote on account of race, color, or a membership in a language minority group. So that's the key uh, terminology or language right there, I think, that they discuss a lot during this hearing. Again, the denial or abridgment of the right of any citizen to vote on account of race, color, or membership in a language minority group. So that's Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. The 15th Amendment to the United States Constitution says the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Kind of repeating the same thing as in Section 2, but Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, again, is trying to set more of a, a voting standard across the nation, uh, like the floor that states have to abide by. And then from there, they can, um, you know, set up certain restrictions as long as a court doesn't find those restrictions on voting or the regulations on voting to cause a type of discrimination on account of race, you know, or ethnicity or 
language. Right. So this is another one of those two-hour oral arguments that I love so much. And actually, I'm, I'm not even being facetious on this one. This was a much more fun argument to listen to. So This one was very enjoyable. I yes. really liked it. It's very heated and a lot more animated than the past couple of weeks have Agreed. been. Agreed. So the, so the first uh, arguer is Michael Carvin, who's arguing on behalf of the Arizona Republican Party. Uh, next guy is... Mark Bronovich, who's a named party in this case, he's the Attorney General of Arizona who's tasked with enforcing these laws. Then there's, uh, on the other side, is Jessica uh, Amundsen, who is the uh, arguing on behalf of the Secretary of State in Arizona, Secretary uh, Hobbs. And then lastly, you've got uh, Bruce Spiva, who is arguing on behalf of the Arizona DNC. The Democratic. Oh, it's actually not even the Arizona DNC. It's the, uh, it's the full-up. Uh, DNC, the United States DNC. Democratic National Com- uh, Commission. Commission. Committee. Committee. Oof. Well, we all know who it is. It's the Democratic Party. See, I didn't know. You didn't know. No. But those are our four guys. Right. So, did you understand any of the arguments they were making? Yes. All Actually, right. Well, I let's get into it. All right. So, again, we have four parties here. First party, Carvin. His argument is that Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act... In order to show discrimination, you need to be able to show a denial of opportunity to vote. So that's his big term there. I, again, I tried to break this down in my head as simple as possible. So his term is opportunity. Mm-hmm. As long as everyone has an equal opportunity to some sort of voting mechanism, mm-hmm. then it's fine and we're not showing discrimination. The second attorney, Bronovich, uh he argued that you need to show substantial disparity as opposed to any disparity. So, yeah, a couple of people's votes get thrown out, whatever. That doesn't mean it was based on race. If you can show that there's a substantial disparity based on race, then you can meet this standard of um, Section 2. Mm-hmm. On the other side of the argument, we have uh, um, Amundsen. I probably probably pronounced it wrong. So, yes, go ahead. Uh, And she is arguing that we need to just look at the results. And if the results show disparity, and she's a little bit more uh, willy-nilly with how much disparity there needs to be. She does throw in there, like, any disparity because in Section 2 it says, you know, abridgment of anyone's right to vote. But at the same time, it's got to be more than one person. She concedes that. But if the end result is a disparity and the data shows that then it can't hold water under section two and then the last person spiva he seemed to focus a lot more on the but for circumstance on the causation the causation but for this law we would have had equal voting in arizona that's basically his argument right got it okay so that makes sense um but I enjoyed, I know I'm already skipping to the end because he was the last person to speak, but he's the most fresh in my memory. I loved that as soon as Justice Gorsuch pops up, it's his turn to ask questions. Um, he's asking about this but-for causation argument that Spiva brings forth. And the first thing that Spiva says is, well, if we look at, you know, the precedent of Bostock. Bostock. Yeah, he instantly, he boom, I'm going to bring up the Bostock case, which is a Gorsuch classic in the anthology of Neil Gorsuch. <laughs> which is very, very short at this point. But yes, yes so that is um, a Supreme Court opinion that he wrote last year. 
Yes. Um, that was a Title Seven issue regarding the the specific meaning of essentially, you know, like this discrimination on the basis of sex. On the basis, of, yeah, that sort of idea. So, like the way it's phrased, how, what does that mean exactly? And so Spiva tries to throw that at him like a softball, like, well, just like you said in your last opinion. And Gorsuch was like, "That's Title Seven. We're talking about something different now. Answer my question." I liked it, which was great. <laughs> Smackdown. <laughs> Yeah. Um, all right. So, yes, this whole oral argument was very heated uh, and very animated, which I appreciated. I think that's just because voting rights, it's one of those topics where everyone can easily get heated about it. But at the same time, you can still be cordial about it, I think. It's, it's like it's, near it and should, dear to it everyone. It should be a bipartisan issue. Right. It should exactly. be something that everybody, everybody agrees. Everybody should have the right to vote. And yeah. let's, let's backtrack a little bit and discuss on how these laws uh, allegedly infringed on um, the whole race element. Okay, of, yeah, let's talk about the pros and cons of them. Like, why were they brought up in the first place? Right. And then why are they being um, uh, questioned now? So I already talked a little bit about the out-of-precinct law. Right, You want to be able to vote for the people who are in your precinct. You want to be able to say, okay, the, this local election, this local election are ones I can vote in. If I go and vote in a different precinct, then in, I'm casting a vote on somebody that it, it was never going to represent me, mm -hmm. right? Kind of goes against the principle of the the vertically tiered elections, so that's the that's the reason behind that. But the con of that is that you uh, apparently a disproportionate number of minority votes were thrown out through this process as opposed to uh, uh, white votes. Mm -hmm. I was trying to think majority, but like white uh, white. Um, I think it was double the amount of minority votes were thrown out as opposed to white votes. However, something important that, that should be noted. 99.5% of white votes were, were counted. 99% of minority votes were counted. So yes, there is a disparity, but we're, I mean, depending on where you draw the line in your statistical analysis, it's, it's a very different answer to the question. You could frame it both ways. I think that ties into a little bit of Amundsen's, I'm just going to call her Amundsen. Uh, her argument kind of wavered a bit because she does make the point that any disparity should be, um, you know, taken seriously. Right. Like any Anyone's infringement to vote should be taken seriously immediately. But the problem is when you have 1%, where where's that line? It's like, well, yeah, less than half a percent. And and the, the idea is, okay, yeah, if we, we threw out, if Arizona, the whole state, threw out 20 votes and uh, 15 of them, or all right, let's go, well, 12 of them were uh, minority votes and eight of them were white votes. Now, now you're talking about like the percentage of the population that's at question here. It's very, very, very low. Mm -hmm. So it's a hard line drawing question. Yes, we should take everyone's right to vote seriously. However, where do we draw the line on disparate treatment based on race? It's a tougher question. Um, and then the ballot harvesting argument. Mm -hmm. I talked about some of the pros of that. It, it's got the perception of um, fraud. It brings up the perception of fraud. You've got people, the, the chain of custody of the ballot isn't always certain. Uh, it's not an agent or a member of that family delivering the ballot. It's somebody else just grabbing it for you. Uh, the, the argument against it, against the statute in Arizona, was minority populations used this ballot harvesting method much more so than uh, white people. Mm -hmm. That's a, a majority of the ballot harvesting was used with minority communities. There's some issues of fact there. They couldn't really get a quantitative analysis behind that. It was kind of just anecdotal evidence. It's, yes, minority populations use this a whole lot more. Mm -hmm. So 
outlawing that. That was their argument anyway. But then there was a really convincing argument in the dissent in the en banc opinion of the Ninth Circuit, mm -hmm. uh, where ballot harvesting only works when you're collecting mail-in ballots. Mail-in ballots, you've already, you've already received them in the mail. And there's an option in Arizona to just send it right back. So you, it's not required to harvest it and bring it to a, a polling location. It's you can you can mail it right back. So the whole ish, the argument of oh the ballot harvesting is the only way these people can vote not true. If you received a ballot at all, you received it in the mail, meaning you can mail it back. And it's not the only option. Right, it's not their only option, but does that mean that they shouldn't have another option? You know, it, it, like it, just because your argument is like, well, but they could have done something else, isn't still a very valid argument. It's a valid to me. argument only because, only because, they. It's not like they were precluded from voting; they had other options. Yeah, and the option that Arizona banned, they had a legitimate reason to believe that there was potential for fraud. It was a prophylactic measure. Well, but that was very much disputed, too, because according to the oral argument, there was, again, I guess it depends on which side you're looking at, because one side's going to say, of course we did it, because that's the reason the other side says, well, there's no evidence on the record that says that's why they did it. Right. So when they actually drafted this legislation, there was no evidence in Arizona of that being an issue at right. all. Right. And then after the fact, everyone, including the Chief Justice, calls attention to this 2005 Commission on Federal Election Reform, which was done by uh, President you know, Carter, former President his, Carter yeah. and the Carter-Baker um, Federal Election Reform in 2005. And there's evidence in that of exactly what Bill just mentioned, that it could lead to... Um, fraud. Fraud, because, you know, especially... Even if there's no evidence of fraud right before us, if you we were going to prevent any chance of it, that's why. But you're right, it wasn't... It, that kind of record was absent from the Arizona legislative intent. So there's an right. issue there. And that's why it's a dispute. Yeah. So let's go through some of the... I wouldn't even say funny things. What's some of the highlights of the argument? Um, I guess the big moment that everyone in the world knows about and is discussing about this particular hearing was Amy Coney Barrett asked Carvin, you know, what, what, why are you doing this? Why are we here right now? And what is your intention behind this? And his answer was pretty telling. Let me move on to a different question. I'm interested in knowing why the RNC is in the case. So, you know, the DNC had standing and the district court said that it had standing to challenge the out-of-precinct policy because the policy placed a greater imperative on Democratic organizations to educate their voters and because the policy harmed its members who would have voted out-of-precinct. What's the interest of the Arizona RNC here in keeping, say, the out-of-precinct uh, um, voter dis ballot disqualification rules on the books? Because it puts us at a competitive disadvantage relative to Democrats. Politics is a zero-sum game. And every uh, extra vote they get through unlawful interpretations of Section 2 hurts us. It's the difference between winning an election 50 to 49 and losing okay, an election Okay, thank you. My time is up. Right. So he kind of gave away. But again, uh, you know, again, so the publicity around that one statement was huge because everyone and their mom is talking about, oh, my God, look at the GOP and what they're doing. They're just trying to, you know, finagle the voting system so that they can win. Yeah, <laughs> and that is what they're doing. And that's not illegal. Like, it's not illegal for Republicans to want to gain more Republican votes, and it's not illegal for Democrats to want to gain more Democratic votes. What is illegal is discriminating based on 
on, you know, again, minority groups or language groups or anything like that. So you can gladly talk about it just like you did. Look, we're doing this because we want to win elections. And by, you know, putting up these types of regulations, we have a better hand. And that's fine. As that's long not what he's as saying. Not... That's not exactly what he's saying. He's saying if you disproportionately give favor to our Democratic colleagues, you're naturally disfavoring us. And that's an injury. What? Her question was like, why do you have standing? Why are you here? No, no, it wasn't. No, that was Thomas, which I well, also approved Thomas, of. Yes. Thomas always asks if they're standing. No, her question was, you know, what is the interest of the Arizona RNC in keeping out of precinct voter ballot disqualification rules on the book? So, like, why are you so hung up on this out of precinct thing if there's no evidence, you know, in Arizona that there's been fraud, if this has been an issue specifically here, why do you want this on the books? And his answer was because it, you know, puts us at a competitive disadvantage relative to Democrats. The fact that we can limit the number of out of precinct voting that happens would benefit us, we think. Listen, I don't think he did a very good job. I mean, do you think that was a selling point for him, though, or do you think that came back to bite him in the butt? Uh, the latter. Yeah. I think so, because then it's a, more of a political question. It's absolutely. He makes just him, made it, it political. It makes him look skeevy, and he changes He changes his argument. I don't know, like, if you listen to the oral argument, they mentioned that he changes his general argument from what he writes in his brief to what he, what he says in the oral argument, too. That's another snafu. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about, because that was another fun point for me, I think, were Kagan's hypos. So I briefly brought this up before we started recording, but this is like when you walk into an interview and you feel super prepared for what you're about to, you know, for a job, and you're like, oh, I totally know this business. I'm so ready. And then the interviewer starts throwing questions like, all right, you have a 12-sided die, and you roll it three times, and two of the times you get a six, and one of the times you get, like, that sort of thing. Yeah. And they put you on the spot with these crazy hypotheticals, and you think, well, I didn't prepare for this. And that's what Kagan, that was all she did. She didn't ask questions. She's just like, I'm going to throw hypotheticals at you, and you tell me which ones stand and which ones fall um, based on Section 2. And according to the oral argument, I haven't read his briefs, but apparently... His whole brief basically said that state voting laws should not be subject to Section 2. Oh, especially for, like, place and manner. That was his whole Time, thing. place, and manner. Time, Time place, place, and manner. Time, place, and manner restrictions are yep. A-OK -okay under Section 2 no matter what because it affects everyone equally. And then the Kagan one, the really good Kagan one was, all right, you, here's the law. You can only vote at country clubs. Yep. What's wrong about that? And he's like, oh, no, 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 you can't do you that. You can't do that. And he's like, oh, she's like, oh. She's like, but that's time, place, and manner. I just selected. Everyone has equal opportunity to go there. Yeah, and you noticed <laughs> uh, uh, Renovich uh, tried to save it at the end. He's like, she's like, would you would you have answered my, my hypotheticals the same as Carvin? And he's like, no, absolutely not. Yeah, but then he couldn't. Oh, no. Yeah, that. All right. I thought he was fine there because... And because at the end, he's like, I don't mean to be difficult with you, Justice Kagan. I think it's a much more complicated question than that. There's a lot of facts. And, and yeah, there's he a couldn't lot of, answer any of her hypotheses. He, he wouldn't he give an answer. He wouldn't give it. And that's not the best At least strategy. the other guy, Carvin, he might have been completely backtracking on his brief, but at least he was giving yes and no's. Yes. Which and, is what she wanted. Which is what she wanted. So uh, I think Brenovich, I think he had the better answer, even though it wasn't the perfect strategy for oral argument. It was like, listen, this is so much more complicated than just this. It was like, it, it, you could be right and it could be, it could be wrong. It very much depends on every other fact. 
in that circumstance. And then she says, well, it is that way. And he's like, well, then yes, sure. But that's, that's again, that's, a, that's after you've completed the totality of circumstances analysis to, to, you can't just answer it based on just the facts you've gave me, Justice Kagan. I need more than that. But that tied into my third favorite part, oh. which is the totality of the circumstances. And mm -hmm. that's where Sotomayor like lost it. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the areas where I feel bad for everyone involved, essentially. But like the attorneys, <laughs> you got a hot bench and they're coming at you with questions. Yep. You don't even have a second to, you know, take a step back and just kind of get unflustered. Once they start coming at you, like they are coming at you. And this guy was definitely getting pretty heated. Um, I felt kind of bad for him. But let's listen to Sotomayor's question. Justice Sotomayor? Counsel, you said that the um, general test under Title VII and other civil rights statutes in response to Justice Breyer puts the burden on the state. But the only burden that that test requires is for the state to justify its practice, to explain why. Why is that a burden that you can't meet? Well, the text of Section 2 doesn't require it. What Section 2 well, and what Section the totality T... Of are... I'm sorry, counsel. By your own admission, the test under voting, two, voting rights 2 is a totality of the circumstances test. And isn't justification one of the circumstances that the Senate report pointed to? Justice Sotomayor, but the burden would be on the plaintiffs to establish that. Under our test, the plaintiffs would have to come forward and Counsel, the test requires an examination of the totality of the circumstances. Can you seriously argue that the reason for why you did something isn't part of that test? Well, First and foremost, I believe we looked into the, to the text of the statute itself the to determine how it should be interpreted and enforced. Counsel, the statute talks about totality of circumstances. I'm asking you a simple question. Are you arguing that the reason you did something is not part of that totality of circumstances? Twofold. One is, is, counsel, is I mentioned is earlier. Question, counsel, why is that question so hard to answer? Yes or no? Is the reason why the state has picked a particular practice an important part of the totality of the circumstances test? Yes. Thank you, counsel. Justice Kagan? She killed him. I can't believe that was her whole segment. Like, mm -hmm. she just wanted to know the answer to one question, and he would not answer it, and she got mad. Yes, she did. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta just answer yes. There's no way he couldn't answer yes. Yeah. So, uh, everyone seemed to get flustered at some point. I liked that Alito got flustered at um, Aim Amson. Yeah, yeah. He's, at the end of his, that set of arguments, he was like, those are a lot of words. I don't understand they, what they mean, but thanks, counsel. Yep. Bye. <laughs> not happy because she no. was, again, trying to give a roundabout answer. I thought that her argument, I thought I was so sure of her argument until all of a sudden I wasn't sure anymore. And I think it was a Sotomayor or Kagan hypothetical. Sotomayor asked good questions all around. Yeah. This time or this case. But essentially where I thought Amundsen was landing was, look, if there are results of disparity then it doesn't meet the standard required under Section 2. Boom, plain and simple, easy, which would be like a nice easy 
standard to have that justices could just look and be like, oh, look, there's facts of disparity here. Easy peasy, done. But then when she was asked about a certain hypothetical regarding uh, closing times, you know, all right, so the polling booth wants to close at seven. Oh, maybe actually this was a Barrett question. Uh, and there is evidence on the record that shows minority groups are going to be disparaged because they work until seven. And so they're going to have less access to voting because it closes at seven. Is that something that would not meet the standards of section two? And Amundsen said, no, like, oh no, well, that would be fine. You know, we have to blah, 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 blah. blah. And the way she gave the answer wasn't great at the end, like the very, very end of her time. I think she threw in a decent reason, which was, look, there's a lot of evidence that shows closing at, you know, a, a, standard time like seven seven o'clock allows for ballot workers to you know do what they need to do at the end of the day okay so that's a legitimate reason but your whole argument if there's any evidence that this regulation results in disparity and now we have evidence of a disparity you, i can't i don't know why she can concede no so quickly that one was tough for me i i don't know that threw everyone out the window and i'm like i don't know where anyone lands anymore yeah this was a it was fun because the it's always fun because the oral arguments are never perfect. And mm. this was an exemplifying case of none of the arguments were perfect. No. No, I think probably Spiva, if that's how you He's say it. He's probably the most polished. Yeah. And I think that was because all the justices had gotten out of their system. Yeah. <laughs> all of their anger and questions and confusion. And I know he argued the same case in the Ninth Circuit, so... Oh, okay. I, th I think everybody else was either new. Uh, Brenovich is not new, but right. everybody else, you know. Was relatively he's, he's new. Got, he's got some, he, he's had practice mm -hmm. on this one. So if that kind of wraps up the fun moments, because I basically noted almost all the same spots that you did. Mm -hmm. um, how do you think it's going to turn out? Well, another aside, because I was trying to look into the media because I knew that the media was going to cover this one a lot more than they cover others because it has to do with the voting rights and obviously 2020 and all of the fraud allegations. This is going to be a hot topic. Mm -hmm. So I was looking at different um, news sources for the how this was going to be portrayed in the media. And again, my news sources are different from your news sources. A lot of the liberal media was very much saying like this is a done deal the justices already know how they're going to land they're all conservative it's a conservative bench so obviously they're going to side with arizona and i didn't get that feeling at all i could be totally off base and wrong but i thought that was really surprising because i didn't feel that way i thought this was a pretty heated and disputed argument on all sides i think that Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch are very strongly in Arizona's camp. Mm -hmm. I think Kavanaugh, Roberts, and Barrett are kind of in that moderate camp. Mm -hmm. With They're kind of with Arizona, um, but not like as strongly as Gorsuch is especially. And then Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan are just way off into Europe. Nope, they're with... Uh, the Secretary of State in Arizona, and they're with the DNC. They're like, nope, this is a voting rights violation. Yep, I totally agree. I think that basically sums it up. Um, Alito, you know, his his primary points were if if we start questioning things like this, it's going to happen every time a state wants to regulate their voting laws. Which justice do you think I was siding most during this case? Um, Barrett. Nope. Sotomayor? Nope. Well, I know you love Breyer, but I don't think the answer is Breyer either. Kagan? K 
Kavanaugh. Really? Kavanaugh, yeah. So I went through a whole list. I know, basically. It was like the end of who you'd think it would be. Yeah. Well, you know, he brought up two pretty good ideas for how we can look at these cases. The first one being uh, if you change a rule that's on the books that makes it harder or worse for minorities to access voting than it previously did, can't we just use that? Like, you had a rule on the books, Mm -hmm. and now it's suddenly harder for them to vote than it was before. Shouldn't we just stick with the previous rule where they had better access to voting? Seems like a pretty easy bright line. And then his second one was rules that are commonplace to other states. So if, you know, there's 26 other states that have the uh, no out of precinct. precinct. Yeah. Right. Which I think there was. There's quite a few states that we we do precinct voting. Right. So if there are 26 states that have precinct voting on the books. Not the same as Arizona's, by the way. But we do. Yeah. Keep going. Well, right. Yeah. It's completely different there. Um, Then isn't that something that we can look at, you know, maybe even just during the totality of the circumstances and be like, oh, well, this is a, you know. A pretty common law across the nation so we shouldn't automatically assume it's being disparaging just because it's new um that one's a little bit more iffy for me because i mean like you just said our states are so totally different mm-hmm. like if you're in arizona or texas i can't even ugh. we live in new england so the idea of driving to me that's always the first thing i think of like if i drive four hours i can go through like four states yes if you drive four hours in arizona you went to like a new town and that just blows my mind, and it I, it makes me feel oddly claustrophobic, which seems the opposite. But mm-hmm. anyway, so all the states are very, very different. So just looking at what other states have in the books, maybe not a great indicator. But I thought his first option of, you know, you have a new rule on the books, and all of a sudden it's more disparaging. Can't we use that as a factor? Yeah. I, I think, for one, n- the opinion is not going to match any of your arguments. Really? Why? I don't because I just think they were all so disjointed. But yeah, I agree with your conclusion. I think this is going to be a pretty split case. Um, I don't know which way they're going to fall. I almost feel like they might fall in favor of the DNC. That's how on the fence I am. I'm on the fence on the other side. Okay. I really do think that um, you can't. This is the whole balance, and this is I'm biased on the whole difference between equality of outcome versus equal. Uh, equality of opportunity Mm -hmm. and I think this is much more of a hey if you look at the totality of the circumstances there was equal opportunity in this case and they might rule differently on both of the yeah again but that's where also the terminology comes into play like is it opportunity that the justices are looking for or are they looking for result because those are two different things I think if you go for result you come to an untenable judicial result because any result whatsoever is disparate well, then you have to look at significant result or any. That's, right. that's where then, the justice is so And then, and then so significant confused. is such a hard, bright line to yeah. draw. This is a this is a tough one. Yeah. So. But, yeah, it seems very much like it could certainly fall either way, mm-hmm. you know. But I'm glad you picked up Ka- on Kavanaugh because, you know, he's one of those ones. Oh, the conservatives are going to. And Kavanaugh is bringing up these very good points in these voting cases. You're just always in Kavanaugh's camp. I am in Kavanaugh's camp. Camp Kavanaugh. Camp, All right. Well, we are going to take a quick break and then reset for our next topic. Those are a lot of words. I really don't understand what they mean, but I, I'm out of time. Thanks. Are you getting hungry? Mm, yes. Oh, yeah, I thought it was your stomach. Okay, welcome back. 
Uh, now it's time for trivia. Yay! So this week was supposed to be Bill's turn to pick the trivia, mm-hmm. and then he totally forgot. Well, that's because I have classes to take and Venetia doesn't. I have a class. So and I did I the news three. item and I'm doing trivia. So because of that, technically I had already picked this trivia ahead of time, but this one's particularly, I suppose, is appropriate this time because it's about you. Well, isn't it all about me? No. All right. Oh, okay. William. Yes. How many Supreme Court justices have sat on the bench mm-hmm. with the name William? Oh. Mm. At least three. I'm going to go with, just to pull it out of my butt, eight. Eight. Okay, but you said three. Can you name three? William O. Douglas, William Brennan, William Rehnquist. Wow. All right. So the actual answer is 11. Oh. You're pretty close. All right, so let's go through all of them. The first one is William Cushing, started in 1790 and retired in 1810. I don't know if they these retired or they died, so I'm sorry if I say retired and they actually died. Off the court. William Patterson, 1793 to 1806. Mm-hmm. William Johnson, 1804 oh, Taft. to 1834. Yep, good point. William Strong, which is a great name. 1870 to 1880, William Burnham Woods, Burnham Woods, uh, 1881 to 1887, William R. Day, 1903 to 1922, William Henry Moody, 1906 to 1910, William Howard Taft, Bill, can't believe I know, that was, he was the chief. And president. And president. 1921 to 1930, William O. Douglas, 1939 to 1975, William J. Brennan, 1956 to 1990, and William Rehnquist, 1972 to 2005. Yep. And then soon to be William Kehoe. No, no, whoever nominates me to the Supreme Court is on drugs. All right, so let's move into our second topic for the day. We are talking about House Resolution number one. All right, so some background. This will be referred to as For the People Act, which is kind of funny. So this is a law reforming voting rights. Mm. Well, it, yes, it's a federal. It's a federal. Right. So as we mentioned before. Federal voting rights. States have the ability to regulate their own vi- voting regulations. But they're looking state. to set a new floor with this. Yes. So this whole bill was originally proposed back in 2019 mm-hmm. by John Sarbanes. And if that sounds familiar to you. It doesn't. Sarbanes-Oxley. So J- Sarbanes-Oxley was a, was a bill that reformed certain regulations around public companies, publicly held companies. If you actually listened in business orgs, Venetia, no. you would remember the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. No. Uh, but this is John Sarbanes, uh, so the, the son of Sarbanes-Oxley, is now a Maryland uh, member of the House, where uh, Sarbanes-Oxley was Senate, but that's fine. It's same family. He proposed this in back in 2019. Uh, it died after it passed the House, uh, and then he reproposed it now with the unified... House, Senate, presidents, uh, executive, all within the same party. The thought is that it'll pass a lot easier this time. Uh, and he proposed it, you know, kind of at around the same time. This has all come to light around the same time as this Arizona case. Mm-hmm. And it, bring, it talks a lot on the same issues. It passed the House. So today is March 6th. It passed the House 2020 to 2010. Or no, no, sorry, not 20. Uh, two, 220 to 210 or something like that. Yeah. On like right. very narrow partisan lines. Mm-hmm. And now it faces a filibuster in the Senate. Right. 
So let's go over some of the key items that it uh, covers. Yeah, so this is a around slightly less than 800 page document. I didn't read it. I definitely looked up the SparkNotes oh. version of this mm-hmm. act. Um, but I just wanted to go through and, you know, I just circled things that stood out to me as beneficial or questionable. On a whole, I felt like it was promoting voting rights in a positive direction that I agreed with. There was nothing that stood out to me specifically that I disagreed with. There was one area that jumped out at me that I questioned, um, but upon further research, I felt a little bit better about later. Uh, But as a whole, I felt pretty good about what the purpose of this act is. How about you, Bill? Um, To be honest, I specifically didn't read... This is why I read... I skimmed the bill itself. Mm. I didn't want to read... CNN or MSNBC or Fox. Or oh yeah, Break I didn't Art. read those. I, I didn't just... write. I didn't read any articles about it beforehand. I went straight to the bill. Mm-hmm. I went to some synopses. Um, generally speaking, I'm okay with a lot of the change they propose. Like um, early registration for 16, 17 year olds. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you know. I wasn't the smartest voter when I was 18, right? But like the pre-registration is is a good idea. I think it gets you a little more involved earlier. Yeah, and um, re- requirements. There are a lot of new requirements here. So like if uh, if you aren't registered, the state like has to get you registered. Like make sure you are at least on the books and available to vote, sort of thing. So it, it's less likely that you accidentally miss your registration because you're just kind of more automatic yeah it's easy it's easier to become a voter mm-hmm. which and and let's just face it it, it shouldn't that be a good thing right on its face on its like on its thing. face whether you're getting more democratic and because generally i think the whole purpose of this bill is to generate more democratic voters of course democratic. again we just and talked we, about this before we just talked about it, and i think that's technically okay yes and, oh, it is but but if i look at just the face of the law mm-hmm. most of the time i don't have a problem with here right with what's here um I like the, we do this in Connecticut. It's the public uh, funding option. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I like that part too. And there's a little, there's, it's not the same mechanism, but it, it, it is pretty cool because if you get a certain number of small, um, small donations mm-hmm. and you get up to a certain amount, there's a public financing option so that you're not as beholden to, or there's no perception that you're beholden to the special interests that donate to your campaign. Um, there's... I, what I didn't like is that... Any- no, let's not even get there yet. Oh. I just saw your screen. We're going to talk about that in a bit. Okay, um, okay. This, oh, yeah, well, they, this, they'll they tell you that this is a this is granting statehood to D.C. It's not. It's just making a finding that it would be good if D.C. was a state. Oh, I didn't even see that part. Yeah, they, it's not making D.C. a state. Mm-hmm. It's really just saying... It, the bill just makes a statement of saying, yes, it would be... It would be good. It would be good. It this, would this, be good. This, this is what gives it away as a we're trying to generate Democratic voters. Mm-hmm. Because if you made D.C. a state, it's instantly like a, you know, three electoral votes for um, whoever's in the blue. Yeah. I mean, whatever. Maybe they turn red someday. Just saying. All right. So, so the way I did it was I went to a section by section breakdown that went to essentially every single section of the bill because I didn't re- want to read all 800 pages. Instead, I read like 25 pages. That was just the mm-hmm. the title of each section. Um, so certain areas that popped out to me having to do with voting 
was, you know, the modern modernization, modernization of registration. So making it a little bit easier to register for voting, uh, making it a requirement to have early voting. You know, not all states have early voting options. So that's Mm -hmm. pretty cool. Arizona did have early voting options, but not every state does. So this would be a requirement Um, prohibiting states from imposing restrictions on voting by mail. So again, like that was huge in 2020 because of the pandemic, obviously. Uh, Every state essentially allowed voting by mail, but there have been states that didn't allow that before. Mm -hmm. Um, So this would make it a restriction that all states have to kind of allow that. Oh, one other point that jumped out at me was the redistricting reform, which requires states to adopt independent redistricting commissions for purposes of drawing congressional districts. Uh, And this... I would assume would prevent a lot of the arguments that we have all the time about gerrymandering. Yeah. If we just had an independent district. And the law is very prescriptive. You have to have five Democrats, Mm -hmm. five Republicans, and five independents on your committee. And to approve a motion, you have to get a vote from at least one vote from each, each faction. Right. Which is, listen, you're taking a lot of the power away from the states. Which By I'm telling not, them how to do it. Which I'm also, I'm like, just on principle, I'm not super comfortable with. Right. But on a policy matter, I'm having a hard time arguing with that. And again, it would just keep it out of the courts all the time because it'd just be like, look, guys, figure this out amongst you three groups. Like, yeah. figure out what you're doing here. Uh, they threw a couple of interesting sections in there. I don't know if this is new or if this is word for word from the 2019. Well, even if it is, it doesn't really matter. But they have some... Uh, Enhancing Protections for United States Democratic Institutions is a subtitle, and it requires that the president produce a national strategy for protecting U.S. democratic institutions. They threw in a lot of these little uh, presidential... Digs at Trump. A little bit. That's what it came across. I mean, again, I could just be reading that into it. No, no, that's how I read it. It seemed like... It's your job to do these certain things, Mr. President or Mrs. President. So make sure that you're doing them and we're going to put it on paper. And again, how much this actually regulates a president is questionable. But they just want to have it in there, which to me almost makes it more, it makes it harder to pass. You know, when you put in these types of things that you know are going to be disputable by the other side, why even bother putting it in there? Yeah, there's actually... A, there's a subtitle in the bill, Democracy Restoration. Mm. It's just like the way they're wording it. Listen, you've got a lot of good stuff in this bill. You're tainting it by adding these little partisan digs. Like, we're going to restore democracy now. I would argue the same way if Republicans were like, you know, bringing strength back to our military. Right. Same thing. Like, are you You're implying just... that there wasn't strength there? Like, why do you have to say it like that? E- exactly. Um, so Title Five, Subtitle A is finding findings relating to Citizens United decision. And all, again, I have just the tiniest breakdown of this whole thing, but it just says, expresses that Congress finds the Citizens United decision detrimental and the Constitution should be amended accordingly. So it's just them writing down on a piece of paper that says, we don't agree with this. We know it's on the books, but we don't like it. And we're also not going to change anything about it. Nope, but we're just going to say we don't like it. Again, you're not like, making stop. friends doing that. Just stop. <laughs> Stop. This is already a long bill as it is. And you, and there's and again, there's good stuff in here. Why are you? Exactly. And, and But yeah. I mean, I guess right now they're shooting for the moon, right? And then maybe they can get some amendments, take out some of the stuff that is too partisan. And then everyone can be friends at the end and they'll win some of these. Maybe that's the hope is that they just are successful. I would say that's the hope. If it, I would say that's the hope if it didn't go through the house the way it did. 
Yeah, they really just got to trim down some of the fat here and just get to like just get to the main points. All right, let's get on to the main topic because I have a feeling it jumped out at you the same way it jumped out at me. There's a provision in the new bill that says any candidate for president or vice president has to disclose 10 years worth of their tax returns. That is absolutely not the thing that popped out at me. (laughs) What was your so? okay? well, that was one thing that popped out at me. it's been a tradition in presidential elections that if you're a candidate, you release your tax returns, right? Back in 2016, 2020, President Trump did not do that. And it upset everybody because that was just the norm. So now they're like, you have to write, uh, you have to release your tax returns, which I think is unconstitutional. But eh, what, what jumped out at you? Um, let me see if I can find it specifically. So it is Title Seven in the Ethics Standards. Oh, rules for the Supreme Court. Yeah, that yeah, didn't jump out at mad. you. I was mad. Well, it jumped out at me, and I was mad about it. Subtitle A: oh, for Supreme no Court Ethics uh, requires the development of a code of ethics for Supreme Court justices. Yeah, no, that that um that annoyed me. Mm-hmm. Not on principle, just like, come on, God, what, are you saying that they don't have ethics? See, and again, that's where the wording of it, you know, making America's armies or whatever you just said uh, before, making them strong again. Like, well, are you implying that they weren't strong before? Are you yeah. implying that they weren't ethical before? Yeah, so again, this is an area where I wouldn't put it in this act specifically. No. It seems unnecessary here. But doing further research, I didn't realize that they are actually the only well i guess there could be some state ones but they're the only federal um court court that doesn't have a code of ethics so that is actually pretty interesting that all other courts do have on the books somewhere some kind of i I saw that too and yeah in principle yeah they should have a a code of ethics right so at some point they just need to do it yeah but like if they're already if i don't actually don't know do they have one themselves the Supreme Court, because oh, like between the nine of them, where they get together and yeah, because I know Connecticut, Connecticut does that. Yeah, right? but they have a commission. They have a commission. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So it, it's but it's, again, I'm it, saying, is there something outside of Congress that gives the Supreme Court their rules of ethics? Not officially, I think is the problem. So again, even but is if it's it a just problem between the nine of them? Well, just because this is what we do as a country, we put things on paper so that we can reference it later. So that if a Supreme Court justice does do something questionable, you can go back later and be like, well, according to our code of ethics, you can't do that. Same with our federal judges, same with our state judges. Like a judge does something that you don't agree with. You, like can, you could impeach you them. You can point to at least something that says you knew you shouldn't have done this because right here it says it. Again, they're mad that the prior regime installed three, in their view, installed three justices. Right, yeah. Is this reactionary? And that's why it rubbed me the wrong way immediately because I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Are you saying they're not ethical? Yeah. Um, Do we need to do this right now? But at the same time, I actually, I can't say I disagree. I feel like it doesn't hurt to have a code of ethics. Yeah, it doesn't hurt, but like the way they're going about it again is just wrong. And even like lawyers, you are currently studying for the MPRE. I am. Um, So we all have this code of ethics that we have to follow anyway. So it only seems logical that they have a... Yeah, I guess. Official code. Yeah. But the way, again, the way they're going about it is just... Yeah, it seemed like time and, time and place to circle back. Yes. This didn't seem like the right time or place to put it in. Yeah. So two other things that I really disagree with in this bill mm-hmm. are that you can't have any ID requirement for an absentee ballot. Mm-hmm. They're outlawing any rule on that. And they're also outlawing any rule or there's, they're banning any rule outlawing ballot harvesting. Out. 
they're banning so, rules against so you can't so the harvesting. Arizona law yep. against ballot harvesting can't do that right Either. and you can't have a rule saying you have to provide some sort of ID to uh, give send in an absentee ballot right which I disagree with I'm saying maybe like the way a lot of the current statutes are written maybe that that would be wrong but if you had a system where there's very accessible free government IDs are available mm -hmm. just to verify if you're voting absentee yeah we're just gonna do a little check write down your license number your ID number mm -hmm. to say yep this is the person who voted I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all I think there's a valid state interest in saying the person who voted was the person who voted. They voted once. You're done. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's a valid state interest. And to, for the bill to say, no, you can't, you can't ask for a verification of an, a government ID for an absentee ballot. Why? Why? Why are you being so obnoxious? Same thing with ballot harvesting. The, I think it's a prophylactic measure of saying, yes, this is, this is a method that is very susceptible to fraud, whether there was fraud or not evidenced, states have a valid interest in pre preventing fraud. And as long as you're doing it in a way that does not discriminate on the basis of race or implicate other factors, then there shouldn't be a blanket uh, disallowment of that type of law. Mm. I don't know. That one doesn't bother me at all. Again, the apparently I have not dug into it, but the study that everyone cited as a 2005 um, study. Mm -hmm. And are you telling me that in the past 15 years, you couldn't find any further evidence of why this ballot harvesting is detrimental to our democracy? No, there's plenty of, I mean, it's evidence not, it's of just it. The, We're just not going to like, talk about they it. They like that one because it was written by a Democratic president. Mm. Same reason why Thomas references a 2012 article in his dissent that we talked about last time. Mm. But I would find it a lot more appealing if you told me, like, we have new data. Like, this has been an ongoing thing. 2005, we so found it. Also, we found it again in 2007. We found it again in 2010. But like, here's, the, here's the problem. It's, you, you can't talk about voter fraud right now. You, I mean, you not can't. Not right now, but they could you're, all those years not, leading up to it. So where are all those studies? Is all I'm saying. Like, if that's really a huge problem where, like, mm -hmm. so, for example, I have to help my friend Janet fill out her ballot because mm -hmm. she's blind. Right. So I helped her fill out her ballot this year. And I can't just ask her, oh, do you want me to drop this off for you? You know, like I can't, I'm not allowed to do that because that would be ballot well, see, harvesting. See, on a policy perspective, I'm fine with that. But it, you are also fine with a state saying, no, you can't do that. No, I'm saying you, what I'm saying is what's in this bill, mm -hmm. a blanket prohibition on any sort of ballast harvesting ban. I think that's wrong. Well, voting rights, as you might have heard from some of our tone at some points in this conversation is a contentious issue. It's a tough issue. Uh, it brings out a lot of passion. So thanks for listening. And maybe next time we'll pick an issue that's not as crazy. Well, we'll see what happens to this bill in the future. I think it about wraps it up for today, but thank you for tuning in and we'll talk to you next time. Bye.